I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we read the stories of the Bible and we find ways to apply them to our lives. The book of Numbers is split into three distinct sections, and this week we begin the second of those three sections. The first section, it's all set up, and it can get rather monotonous and boring as it covers counting and odd commands and a lot of extremely repetitive texts. There is very little narrative contained in the first part of the book of Numbers. Well, that is about to change. Today we begin the second of these three sections, and the next 16 chapters or so are going to be primarily narrative. And narrative is a form of writing that we connect to easily as modern humans. We like stories, don't we? One of the reasons we like narrative so much is because we're able to connect to the stories in some way. In a well-written narrative, we connect to the characters on a deep level, or we connect to the setting or the themes of the narrative speak to us truths that might not come across well in other methods. And these chapters of Numbers, they do this at a deep level. These chapters shine a light into our very soul and the human condition, and they're going to reveal what lies there. And that picture is not a pretty one. It is a picture that is painted with broad strokes. Strokes of greed, lust, envy, power struggles, slander, and doubt. The darkest parts of the human heart. You see, if Exodus was a revelation of who God is and the human response to that revelation, whether it's the hard heart of Pharaoh or the rebellion of the golden calf, then Numbers is a revelation of who humanity is, hard-hearted and rebellious and then who God is in response to that. Jealous, just, and firm. Willing to punish in order to train. If Exodus reveals God as a caring husband who wants to dwell with his bride and care for her, then Numbers reveals God as a father. A loving father who desires obedience, will not stand for rebellion, and is not afraid of punishing his children in order to train them how to live. And as we get into these chapters, it'll be easy to slip into several types of responses to the stories that we're going to read. The first type of response is one of criticizing God for his heavy-handedness in dealing with Israel. Shock and horror at the plagues and earthquakes and judgments that he directs towards Israel in their failures. This response is the response of a judge who sits in judgment of God and his failure to live up to modern understandings of love, patience, mercy, kindness, and compassion. The second type of response is one of criticizing Israel for their failures. This is a response that looks on Israel at this point in their journeys and shakes their heads at them, tisk, tisk, tisking their lack of faith, criticizing them for their rebellion and their disobedience. This view sets the reader apart from Israel as a judge. 
is one who looks on from the outside, and the implications of this view is that the one doing the judgment does not believe that they would make the same choices under the same circumstances. And the third, and I believe the appropriate response to these stories, is to place yourself in them, to consider them, and then to consider how you are living out these very failures yourself in some way. If not now, then at least you've done so in the past. And if you truly can't recognize these failures in yourselves, then simply take time and imagine what it would take to bring you to the point of making these choices. Because we all have the capacity to respond the way that Israel responds to the hardships of the wilderness. It is in you. And recognizing this is perhaps the greatest truth to be found in this book. Because once we realize these failures in ourselves, then we can begin to address it. So let's turn to Numbers chapter 11, and let's read this chapter and then discuss what it contains for us today. Numbers chapter 11. And it came to be when the people were complainers, it was evil in the ears of Hashem. And Hashem heard it, and his displeasure burned, and the fire of Hashem burned among them and consumed those in the outskirts of the camp. And the people cried out to Moshe, and Moshe prayed to Hashem, and the fire died down. Then he called the name of the place Taverah, because the fire of Hashem had burned among them. And the mixed multitude who were in their midst lusted greatly. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who is giving us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate without cost to Mitzrayim, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our being is dried up. There is naught to look at but this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like the appearance of bedellium. The people went out and gathered it, ground it on millstones, or beat it in the mortar, and cooked it in a pot, and made cakes of it, and its taste was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna fell on it. And Moshe heard the people weeping throughout their clans, each man at the door of his tent, and the displeasure of Hashem burned exceedingly. And in the eyes of Moshe it was evil. So Moshe said to Hashem, Why have you done evil to your servant? And why have I not found favor in your eyes to put the burden of all these people on me? Was it I who conceived all these people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a foster father carries a nursing child, to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat to eat. I am unable to bear all these people alone, because the burden is too heavy for me. And if you are doing this to me, kill me, please kill me, if I have found favor in your eyes, and let me not see my evil. Then Hashem said to Moshe, Gather to me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of appointment, and let them stand there with you. And I shall come down and speak with you there, and shall take of the spirit that is on you, and put on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you do not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Set yourselves apart for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, because you have wept in the hearing of Hashem, saying, Who is giving us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Mitzrayim. And Hashem shall give you meat, and you shall eat. You are going to eat not one day, or two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a month of days, until it comes out of your nostrils, and becomes an abomination to you because you have rejected Hashem who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come up out of Mitzrayim? 
And Moshe said, The people in whose midst I am are six hundred thousand men on foot, and you, you have said, I give them meat to eat for a month of days? Could flocks and herds be slain for them to be sufficient for them? Or could all of the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? And Hashem said to Moshe, Is the arm of Hashem too short? Now see whether my word meets you or not. And Moshe went out and spoke to the people the words of Hashem, and he gathered the seventy men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. And Hashem came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the seventy elders. And it came to be when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, but did not continue. However, two men remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed, but did not go out to the tent, and they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and informed Moshe, and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Yehoshua the son of Nun, Moshe's assistant from his youth, answered and said, Moshe, my master, forbid them. Then Moshe said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Oh, that all the people of Hashem were prophets, that Hashem would put his spirit upon them. And Moshe returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. And a wind went forth from Hashem, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side, and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. And the people were up all that day, and all that night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. He who has the least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. The meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, and the wrath of Hashem burned against the people, and Hashem struck the people with an exceedingly great plague. Then he called the name of that place Kivrot Hatava, because there they buried the people who lusted. From Kivrot Hatava the people set out for Chatzorot, and they were at Chatzorot. So let's pick up with a reminder of just where Israel has been up to this point, because this narrative in reality it picks up on the narrative of from the exodus that we left so long ago. A little over a year ago in their timeline, Israel had been slaves. They'd served Egypt under severe oppression for decades at the very least. And from this oppression, Israel was freed as Hashem worked signs and wonders in their midst and defeated their enemy. And so Israel traveled for some time as they were initially led into the wilderness. And in their travels, they faced some challenges lack of water being the first to present itself, then enemies attacking the weak at the back of their column, and then even a lack of food. And to all of these challenges, Hashem proved himself capable of providing. And so Israel is brought to Mount Sinai, where Hashem enters into a covenant with the people and gives them a law to govern over them, provides plans for a place where he will meet them, and institutes worship rituals with which the people can relate to him. And for a whole year, things seemed to be going pretty well. Except there was that issue with the golden calf that had been taken care of swiftly and decisively. And there was that time with Nadav and Avihu that's still fresh in their minds. But other than that, they're back on top. Hashem is back in their midst of the camp, dwelling with them, and they are ready to go and conquer. And so it is that one year and 35 days after their deliverance from Egypt, after all of these other things have been taken care of, that Israel breaks camp for the first time to begin their journey to the land of Canaan and the promise that Hashem has made to both them and their forefathers. And at the end of the last chapter, we read that they started out with a three-day journey until their first resting place. 
as chapter 11 opens, we read of an opening incident that does not have a lot of detail. Apparently, on the way to the first stop during this three days of journey, some of the people started to complain. And we read that this was evil to Hashem, and a fire burned among the outskirts of the camp, consuming those who were complaining. And in response, they named the place Tabara. Now, this presents an issue. In chapter 33 of Numbers, we read a list of all of the places that Israel made camp between Egypt and Canaan. In this listing, however, Taberah is not mentioned at all. In fact, this list of resting places goes directly from Sinai to Kivrot HaTavah, the place where the remainder of the chapter occurs. This place, Taberah, was not even a place where the cloud came to rest. It was the place along the way, the place where they perhaps laid their heads for a night without really unpacking, getting up and moving again in the morning. Already things are not looking good for Israel. Not even three days into the journey and already some are complaining. About what? No, well, we're not told. Perhaps it has something to do with having to move three days in a row without a real stop and a real rest. Travel all day, stop, sleep, wake, travel, stop, sleep, wake, travel, etc. It only takes a short time before this type of life gets really tiring. Can we stop somewhere for more than just a day? Can we take a break? Seriously, what is the rush? It's only an 11-day journey to Kadesh Barnea where we can then begin the invasion. Are we going to travel the entire way without a rest? Maybe Hashem has forgotten that we're human and that we can't keep going on like this day after day. Already we see the heart of man peeking through in just these first three verses. Not even three days on the road, and already the people are complaining. And Hashem is not pleased with this. And as a parent who has traveled long distances with children, I can tell you that there is little more that is more frustrating than a child who complains the entire trip. I, as the parent, I know the schedule that we need to keep, and I know the destination that we're aiming towards. And sometimes those two things conspire towards forcing a lot of travel into just a few days. And if one child is complaining, well, then it's bad. But if it continues, it catches. Soon more children are complaining. Soon everyone is dissatisfied with the progress. Because nothing catches on like a bad attitude. Now here, right off the bat, we get our first taste of what I was talking of earlier. We want to sit in judgment over these people and their complaining, or we want to sit in judgment over Hashem and His response. We cannot allow this to happen as we go through these chapters. Instead, we must find ourselves in this story. We are the kids in the back seat, uncomfortable, bored, and antsy. We are the people who want a break and who want it now. And we're going to let everyone know about it until we get it. And this is the first thing that we're shown of the human heart. A heart for complaining about our place. Complaining out of impatience, or boredom, or discontent. And it's this that we have to guard our hearts against first. Well, just after this short opening, we're treated to a much longer narrative. It has a whole lot going on in it. First off, we read of the rabble of the community lusting after variety in their diet. 
Now, Jewish tradition says that this word, the Hasaf Suf, is equivalent to the mixed multitude that left Egypt with Israel, which is why many translations you will see this phrase, mixed multitude, used to describe those who were the first to lust after other foods. The reason that this is translated this way is because it then says later that the children of Israel also wept or cried out about the food choices. And we see clearly that this provides evidence for a truth that I stated earlier. Nothing spreads faster than a bad attitude. Discontent with diet spreads quickly, and soon a large cross-section of the people are crying out for variety. And it does seem as if the source of the complaining is from the people who are not native-born to Israel, those who are tagging along but are not fully on board with the journey. And the way that they steep their cries is one that is an affront to Hashem. Do you remember how good we had it in Egypt? In Egypt, we had all sorts of variety in our diet, and we didn't even have to pay for it. Do you remember the fish and the leeks and the melons and the cucumbers and all of the wonderful flavors and varieties and textures? But out here, with this God, there's nothing but manna. Manna, manna, manna. Manna porridge, manna cakes, manna mash, fried manna, manna stew, manna gumbo, manna casserole, manna souffle, manna, manna, manna. We are so tired of manna. Again, there's a lot to dissect in this complaint. First off, the manna was a miraculous occurrence. Literal bread from heaven dropped on their doorsteps. And yet after a year, it had become so commonplace, it had become bland. Just how easy is it for an ongoing miracle to become something that can easily be dismissed? Second, it's so easy to see the past through rose-colored glasses, to look at the past and to only see the good things, and then to judge your current circumstances on only the good of the past. Do you remember when we had so much variety in our diet? Yes, but we were slaves, our children were being murdered, and we lived in constant fear, but the food, at least there was a variety in the food. Third, there's taking the side of the complainer, the one who is dissatisfied with the place where God has them. There will be all sorts of voices in any community, and the one that will be the loudest is usually the voice of the complainer. And the complainer will often be the one trying to remind everyone of how things used to be done, or the way that what is happening now is not what they want it to be. So alongside the complainer, we find two other pitfalls, losing sight of the miracle in your midst and those rose-colored glasses when thinking back on our enslavement in the world of sin and death. And these three things, along with the long road that they've just taken a break from, they conspire together to lead to vocal malcontent with the situation. Well, these complaints, they get to Moses, and already Moses has had it. And the displeasure of Hashem burned and in the eyes of Moses, it was evil. A connection is being made here to the previous instance. Previously, the complaints were evil in the ears of Hashem, but now the complaints are evil in the eyes of Moses. And in both instances, they lead to the displeasure of Hashem burning against the people. 
But before we get to what Hashem is going to do about these complaints in his displeasure, we find in the center of this chapter a short turn in the narrative to Moses and the elders. So when Moses hears of the complaints of the people, he in turn goes to God and he voices his own complaint. And Moses accuses God of doing evil to him by placing the burden of leadership over these people on his shoulders. Here, Moses even compares himself to a foster father who is caring for children who are not his own to lead them to the promised land. Where in the world is Moses going to find enough meat to feed all of these people who are complaining that they don't have meat and are seemingly, after only three days of travel, ready to rebel? In fact, Moses is so fed up with leading these people that he asks for God to kill him. If I have found favor or grace in your eyes, then just kill me now. I can't do this alone. So the question arises, why is the complaining of the people bad, but the complaining of Moses acceptable in God's eyes? We're going to find that both complaints are addressed by God, but the complaint of the people is done so in such a way as to cause them to curse themselves. But the solution to Moses' complaint is one that provides for his issues. So why this dichotomy? Why is one complaint acceptable and the other is not? I believe it has to do with who the complaints are addressed to. The people with their complaints... Well, they're complaining to each other. They're complaining publicly to the point where Moses hears the complaints of the people. But Moses addresses his complaints to Hashem in private. He doesn't start complaining to Joshua and her about the people. He does not complain to the people about their behavior. At least at this point, he doesn't. He takes it directly to God and places his complaints at his feet. Also, the people, they look back to Egypt as the solution for their problems, or as at least the litmus of what good looks like to them. Moses, however, looks to Hashem or death as the only solutions to his problem. There's no enslavement in Egypt and service to no other God that can remedy his complaint. Either God provides or kill me. Now, these are just two of the differences that I've spotted in the nature of these complaints, and it's likely the difference between a properly addressed complaint and an improperly addressed complaint. And I recommend that you spend some time contrasting these complaints against each other and to discover just how they are different from one another. There are more ways that they do differ. Regardless, up to this point, we've seen only problems in this chapter. In fact, as the last chapter read up, we read of the good that was to be done to this people. This is what Moses promised Hobab if he joined them on the journey. God has promised good, and you can partake of that good. Good is mentioned three times in connection to the outcome of the journey. But when we get to this chapter, and up to verse 16, we find four occurrences of the word evil. There's nothing good as they begin the journey. The people see the situation as bad, and their response as seen as evil in the eyes of both God and Moses. And alongside this evil, we find one thing that was truly evil being called good. In verse 15, as Hashem is repeating the complaints of the people, he says, Who is going to give us meat to eat? For it was good with us in Egypt. This entire chapter points out the difficulty of defining good and evil. The people saw their circumstances as evil, 
but God and Moses saw their responses as evil. Moses then sees his own death as the only good solution to this evil situation. And the people, they call Egypt good. There is a very deep discussion going on in this chapter about the definitions of good and evil and the difficulty in finding accuracy in any application for these definitions, which is one of the reasons that I don't believe that good and evil are the definitions we are to attempt to define or describe. Instead, let's try to attempt to define life versus death. And only once we have life versus death definitions, then can we properly ascribe good and evil. But this is not something that I have a lot of time to focus on today. So let's continue on. In verse 16, Hashem begins to address the complaints that have been brought to him. First off comes the second complaint, the one that was addressed directly to him. Moses is to gather 70 elders to help him carry the burden of the people. Now, we've seen this before. Moses stretched too thin in his attempt to do everything that the people needed. And in this previous instance, it was Moses' own father-in-law that proposed that men be appointed to be over portions of the people. Exodus 18, 17-24 And the father-in-law of Moshe said to him, What you are doing is not good. Hmm. Both you and these people with you shall certainly wear yourselves out, for the matter is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it yourself. Now listen to my voice, and let me counsel you, and Elohim be with you. Stand before Elohim for the people, and you shall bring the matters to Elohim. And you shall enlighten them concerning the laws and the Torah, and show them the ways in which they should walk, and the work which they do. But you yourself seek out from all the people able men who fear Elohim, men of truth, hating unfair gain, and place these over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And they shall judge the people at all times. And it shall be that they bring every great matter to you, and they themselves judge every small matter. So make it lighter for yourself, for they shall bear with you. If you do this word, and Elohim shall command you, then you shall be able to stand, and all this people also go to their place in peace. Moshe listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. In this previous instance, the burden of the people was too great for Moses, and the elders were appointed to help him carry the burden. Now, I find it interesting that in the book that deals with the revelation of the nature of God, it's a foreign human solution that's accepted as the means of sharing the burden of leadership. And in this book that contains the revelation of the nature of man, it's a spiritual solution that is used to alleviate the burden of leadership on Moses. And in both cases, it's the same solution. Additional men to help carry the burden. In Exodus, the men were chosen, but it was Moses alone who was to approach God and teach the word of God. Here in Numbers, it seems as if the 70 elders were blessed with the spirit of God for the purpose of being able to speak to God on behalf of the people. Well, just after God tells Moses what the solution is going to be for his complaint, then God tells Moses what the solution is going to be for the people's complaint. Moses is to go before the people to tell them to sanctify themselves because tomorrow meat is back on the menu. You complained in the hearing of Hashem that it was so great in Egypt because you had meat. So tomorrow Hashem is going to give you meat 
Not just enough for one day or two or five, but for an entire month. You will eat meat until you have had your fill and it is abominable to you, just as you've accused the manna of being. You have rejected Hashem, you have favored Egypt, and you are pining to return to your slavery. And so Hashem is going to prove that it's not meat that you're truly craving. Meat can be provided, but you're not going to like it. When I was a young boy, my brother and I, we would get in a lot of trouble. We would steal sweets. Uh, My mom would buy sweets. She'd put them in the freezer, attempting to hide them from us. But we would always find them, and we'd pull out the box of cookies or the the Twix or the Kit Kat or the, the ice cream or whatever, and we'd help ourselves to it in hiding. We'd get caught. Nearly every time we'd get caught. Well, it got so bad that at one point my mom had a brilliant idea to cure us of this. Instead of taking away things that we wanted, instead of taking away or punishing us with a rod or anything of that nature, instead, she gave in. She gave us what we wanted. For the next week, we were to eat only desserts. Now, the next week, my mom, she would make the most amazing dishes, the the stuff that we loved, our favorite foods. She would made them for the rest of the family. But my brother and I, we had cake. We had an ice cream sundae. We had a banana split. We didn't get to eat the rest of the food like the rest of the family was eating. I'll tell you what. It wasn't but three days before we despised sweets. We were begging, begging, please, please let us eat food. We're sorry. We're so sorry. Now, providing desserts for two young boys for a week, it's not a big deal. A month of meat for the people of Israel? (laughs) That, on the other hand, is a pretty big deal. And to this, Moses says, hold it. There are 600,000 men in this camp. Where could we find enough meat to feed several million people meat for 30 days straight? So not only did Moses complain and it was okay, but now we see Moses doubting Hashem's ability to provide the meat necessary for all of the people. And yet it's okay. How does Hashem reply when this is brought to his attention? He says, just watch and see whether my word comes to pass or not. And so to wrap up the chapter, we read the fulfillment of these promises to Moses. Both of the situations are taken care of. And interestingly, it's a Ruach that answers both of the problems. First, the 70 elders are anointed with the Spirit, the Ruach, In the Hebrew, the spirit is taken from Moses and it is put onto the 70. Now, this event is one that's very reminiscent of Pentecost. 70 being the symbolic number of the number of nations and the spirit of God coming down and landing upon men. We know that they left on the 20th day of the second month, 50 days into the the year, and the trip it took them three days. Now, we're not told exactly when this occurred, but these two pointers, I don't believe they're accidental. Three days, 50 days, the Spirit coming down and resting on men, those men then speaking in prophecy, and 
each of these is connected to the day of Shavuot in the New Testament. Acts 2, 1-5, And when the day of the festival of Shavuot had come, they were all with one mind and in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from the heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and settled on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them to speak. Now in Jerusalem there were dwelling Jews, dedicated men, from every nation under the heavens. And when Peter gets up to speak, he makes references to several prophecies from Joel and Psalms. We read of Joel 2, 28-32, Psalm 16, 8-11, and Psalm 110, 1, as part of his speech. The day of Pentecost was a day of anointing, and an anointing for a purpose. An anointing people to lead others into Israel. Now there's uh, something interesting that happens in this instance. In this particular instance, there are two men who were elders who did not come to the tent of meeting for one reason or another. Now, we're not really told why these men didn't come when they were summoned, but that doesn't matter. They're still anointed with the Spirit when the Spirit was distributed to the elders. And the two who were in the camp, Medad and Eldad, one meaning love of a friend and the other meaning God loves as a friend, when this happened... A young man ran to tell Moses that they were prophesying. And it's here that we get this indication that Moses' complaint, it was a private complaint. Because Joshua seeks to forbid these men from prophesying. And what's Moses' response? Don't stop them on my account. Don't be jealous of protecting my position as a leader. It appears as though Joshua and the others, they had no clue that Moses was struggling with his role as leader of Israel and that Moses needed as much help as could be found in the camp, but that he did not address his concerns to the men. Moses' response is one that betrays his thoughts some, though. I wish that all Israel were prophets. The unstated finish of the statement being, then I wouldn't have to lead all of you anymore. And then the chapter finishes with the answer to how the chapter opened. Again, another Ruach comes. The first Ruach that was given was an answer to an issue as a Ruach that comes from Hashem. The second Ruach, however, is a Ruach that comes from Hashem. Now, the first Ruach is a Ruach of spirit, and the second Ruach is a Ruach of wind. You see, in the Hebrew, there's no difference between the two. The spirit is the unseen force that moves just as the wind is. It's the unseen force that moves. Same word for both things. And in this case, the wind brings quail in from the sea. And the amount of quail that's present in the morning is two cubits deep and a day's journey to all sides of the camp. This is a massive amount of birds. In fact, a homer that's described in this chapter, not to be confused with an omer, a homer as roughly equivalent to 220 liters, or 58 gallons. So when the one who gathered the least gathered 10 homers, that's 580 gallons of quail per man. Multiply that by 600,000 men who are gathering a 4-ounce bird, and the size of this flock of quail could be as big as 1.14 billion birds large, give or take a few million. 
This number of birds would easily feed 2 million people for 30 days. The problem is, there's no way to preserve that much meat for 30 days that quickly in the ancient Near East, in the wilderness. Now, verse 33 is not all that clear. It says, while the flesh was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of God burned against them and they were struck with a plague. Now, this has often been interpreted that anyone who ate of the birds was then struck with this plague. And that is what the language of this passage seems to indicate. In this view, the people were warned by what Moses said in verse 20. This request for meat was going to come to pass, but the request was made out of rejection of Hashem. Anyone who eats of the quail will have it turned to an abomination. And this view states that God brought the quail to prove that he could do this and that there was nothing that was beyond him, but that this gift was a trap. You asked for it. You requested it. However, it's based on a rejection of me. Go ahead. Take it. I dare you. And those who ate of the food then died as soon as they started. That's one possibility. But there's another possibility. 1.14 billion quail is a huge number. It would have taken a long time to chew all that quail. And it would have started to go bad before long. And so perhaps it can be understood that these phrases, between their teeth and before it was chewed, it's an idiom for before all of the birds could be consumed. In this view, the birds would still have served as a test. For all of Israel, these birds, they were a blessing, meat for everyone. But for most, it would have started to go bad. And so they would stop eating of the meat and return to eating the plentiful and beneficial food source that was reliably present every day. For the rest, however, for those who were more concerned with variety, for those who were not satisfied with the manna, for those who were perhaps angry at God for taking them from their helpings of fish and cucumbers and onions and garlic and giving them only manna in return, for those ruled by their stomachs and their desire for flesh, they got sick and died. Now, Psalm 78 speaks on this, and it uses much of the same language, but there is something else that's added to this poetic retelling that was missing from this account. Psalm 78, 23 through 31. Yet he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of the heavens, and he rained down manna on them to eat, and he gave them the grain of the heavens. Men ate bread of the mighty, and he sent them provision to satisfaction. He made an east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he brought the south wind, and he rained meat on them like dust, and winged birds like the sands of the sea, and he let them fall in the midst of his camp all around his dwelling place. So they ate and were completely satisfied. Now that phrase right there makes me think that the second option is the right option. However, for he brought them what they desired. They did not turn away from their desire. Their food was still in their mouths, and when the wrath of Elohim came against them, and he killed among their fat ones, and he struck down the choice ones of Israel. In Psalm 78, it was the choice ones and the fat ones of Israel that were killed, those who were ruled by their stomach, those who were ruled by gluttony and lust. The rest, regardless of the view that you take on how this played out, they were not ruled by their stomachs. They either took the hint or were not foolish by eating this bad meat out of spite. 
And the chapter ends by then telling us that the name of the place was Kivrot Hatava, Graves of Lust. Now, this word avat is one that can be translated as lust, but it simply means a strong desire, and that desire can be for anything. It is this word that's used in Deuteronomy 5.21 in a repeat of the Ten Commandments. It says, you do not covet your neighbor's wife, nor do you desire, that's the same word, your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or whatever belongs to your neighbor. In Exodus 20, only the word chamad is used to covet or to envy. But in Deuteronomy, though, after saying, do not covet your neighbor's wife, we then find this word, you do not desire your neighbor's good. Do not lust after your neighbor's items, after their things. And it's with this reminder that the chapter closes with Israel moving on from this place, this place of blessing, this place of curse. Now, there is in the symbolic view something that's going on in this chapter under the service, something that's quite profound and challenging to each one of us when we see it. So, the symbolic view begins with an extrapolation of the manna to its symbolic equivalent. In Deuteronomy 8, we read this, Deuteronomy 8.3, And he humbled you, and he let you suffer hunger, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, to make you know that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of Hashem. Bread is not what sustains, but rather the word of God. This is the first time that we see this connection between bread and the word of God, but it's not the last. Other places, such as Amos 8.11, See, the days are coming, declares the master Hashem, that I shall send a hunger in the land, not a hunger for bread or a thirst for water, but for hearing the words of Hashem. Again, bread being symbolically linked to the word of God. Bread, the physical equivalent to the Word of God, which is the spiritual analog. Now, I can go on, but this is a connection that I established when we went through the table of showbread in the tabernacle back in Exodus 25 and 26. So if you want more on that, go back to that uh, that podcast. So if the manna is the Word of God, then what is the other foods that the people desired? The fish, the melons, the cucumbers and such, this tasty food of Egypt. Is it perhaps the teaching of the false gods, the teaching and instructions of the world, the instructions that lead to death, that which entices and leads astray, that which is a rejection of Hashem and his word, a rejection of Hashem and his bread? Let's consider what the what is the symbol of meat throughout scripture. Well, meat is the deeper teachings of God. That stuff in God's word that has a lot of substance that can be chewed over, but that is not fit for babies or young children. Isaiah 28, 9 says, Whom would he teach knowledge and whom would he make understand this message? Those weaned from milk and those taken from the breasts. Or Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, Concerning whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For indeed, although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first elements of the words of God. And you have become such as need milk and not solid food. For everyone partaking of milk is an experience in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, whose senses have been trained by practice to discern both good and evil. Solid food. Good, solid meat. And for Israel in the wilderness, where was their meat to come from? It was to come from the altar accompanied by worship. 
So for Israel to ask for meat and not bread, and not just meat, but the meat of Egypt, this truly is an affront to the God of Israel. They weren't ready for meat. They were still babes. If they were to have meat, it was something that was to be eaten in his presence and with his people. And this is something that we must all guard against. There are a billion things in our world that we can turn to out of desire. Seeking to have something more than we have. Seeking to know more. Seeking to be entertained. Seeking an experience. Not satisfied with the bread of God. Not satisfied with the bread of his word. The things of this world, the things of our former lives calling out to us. Remember the money? Or the women, or the drugs, or the power, or the food? Remember the movies, and the books, and the entertainment that occupied our minds? Remember the things that the world calls good? Don't you want these things? No mention of the heartache, the broken relationships, the loneliness, the hurt, the guilt, the shame, the bondage. When the desire rises in you to turn back because you don't have what you want or what your flesh desires, don't. We each have in our lives things that entice us to turn away from our spiritual sustenance. We turn to other things to sustain our spirit, especially when we turn from the word of God and replace our time with him and his word with the things of Egypt. Don't fall for it. Don't reject Hashem because you desire the things of the world. They will not satisfy you. They will overwhelm you. They will turn abominable in your mouth. And in the end, all that waits is a grave. A grave dug by your own lusts and desire for the things of the world. So forget about the things of this world. They do not provide life. They do not make life worth living. They are not the way of life. And they can become a distraction as you continue to Dereshchai. So seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.